You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 5th, 2006. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Good evening, everyone. Evan Bernstein. Hello to my friends on planet Earth. Perry DeAngelis. Good evening. And Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Good to be here. We have an all-testosterone show this week. Yeah. For, for the first time in quite a while, actually. All-male uh, review. Since Rebecca joined the crew. Rebecca is in Europe this week, uh, and we couldn't get her onto the show from Europe. Although, she's actually going to be in Europe next week, but promised that she will try to get on the show next week. But So we will see. She says she can get access to the Internet from England, but not where she is now, which I think is in France. We technically can barely get her on from Boston. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to see if we can get her from Europe. But it shouldn't really matter. So this is our 50th podcast. Yes. This is a bit of a milestone. This is number 50. Big five zero. <laughs> it seems like only a year ago we started doing these. <laughs> At least. And thank you all, the listeners, who have helped make this podcast very successful today. Absolutely. We have a couple news items this week, and I'll, I'll mention now, actually, that we have coming up shortly an interview with Gerald Posner, the author of Case Closed and other excellent investigative journalist books. Uh, it, well, I guarantee you it'll be an excellent interview, so stay tuned for that. But first, we'll do a couple news items, a couple emails. First is, now we've we've spoken on this show in the past about the science behind secondhand smoke. And in the last, I think it was last week, the, the current Surgeon General, Richard Carmona, came out with a, a big warning against secondhand smoke. Uh, again, we'll have the link to the, the that actual report as well as some articles about it on our notes page. And it's it, interesting because there's been, you know, the debate is, what is how solid is the evidence for the health risks of secondhand smoke? Uh, there is the anti-smoking campaign and in the last you know 20 years there has been a significant shift in public opinion against uh, basically allowing smoking in public buildings and restaurants etc and a lot of this is being driven by the the evidence that's been accumulating over the last 20 years about the health risks of secondhand smoke specifically heart disease and cancer are the big two uh, that that uh, actually people talk about the most although actually the evidence is best for the pulmonary, the lung effects of secondhand smoke, such as uh, exacerbating asthma, especially in children. But there are still those who are skeptical of, of this body of evidence. And I think we had brought this up in the context before that you know, Penn and Teller had done a show on secondhand smoke where they basically said that it's bullshit you know, on their show by that name. Um, although I didn't think they got it quite right. Uh, it's certainly true that the evidence is um, a little bit oversimplified, you know, for the purposes of communicating a clean and unambiguous message to the public. And it may be the, the statistics are presented in a way to make the, pro the magnitude of the problem seem as big as possible, even though it may not be the most accurate way to present those statistics. And, and I was kind of a soft skeptic on it, saying, yeah, you know, the evidence is actually pretty weak, but... It's, it's enough to base policy on the fact that, yeah, there is some risk. But since then, in the last you know, five or so years, the evidence is consistently moving in the direction of more and more evidence 
for the health risks of secondhand smoke. When there's a real phenomenon, typically what we see in, in research over time is that as better and better studies get done, as the criticisms of earlier studies are fixed and, and new, better designs are done, the size and the magnitude of the effect will tend to grow if it's a real effect. If it's not a real effect, then the size will tend to shrink, you know, eventually down to zero. So just I think the trend over time, I think, is for this evidence to be, in fact, more robust. The, the, the war on smoking in the United States, uh, you know, I'm told it's like <laughs> the polar opposite in Europe but yeah. and the other parts of the world. But in the United States, it's been so vibrant. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a virulent war against smoking here and very successful. I mean, to the point where we have a, a you know a miasma of laws now against yeah. smoking which i heartily endorse by the way we, well, i'm sure you do <laughs> absolutely are you guys familiar with uh, japan's attitude toward smoking yeah right how how self-deluded can a nation be their their major concern from what from what i've read was not politeness in terms of uh, oh i can't I don't want to bother anyone smoking. A lot of what they're concerned with is the mechanics, you know, the best place and time to smoke and just, you know, how to go about that whole, you know, the whole aspect of smoking. It was like a, it's a ritual behind it. Right. That's a good word. The other two, the other thing about it is that they also, you know, it's like a national belief that they're they're not affected by it like every other human is. They've actually have doctors saying that. That smoke smoking does not harm Japanese people. Essentially, they are, for whatever reason, they they are essentially immune to it. Smoking is downright encouraged in France. Absolutely, it's it's really been a unique war, as I was saying, in the United States. And you know, secondhand smoke is is now sort of uh, the new target. You simply have to make sure that the studies are 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 good and viable. I mean, certainly. Yeah, of the- course. And there's a couple. I'm gonna I'll point out a few interesting aspects to this body of literature. One is that the tobacco industry still consistently funds a lot of studies. And now it's been secondhand smoke is the big political issue. They fund studies into secondhand smoke. And a lot of the studies that they fund are curiously negative, and they're negative out of proportion to studies that are not funded. Hmm. Uh, a lot, of, In fact, early on, a lot of the skepticism was, well, if you do a meta-analysis, you look at all the studies of secondhand smoke, it's a mixed bag. Some show there's a risk, some show there doesn't, and it all comes out even in the wash. But if you take out all of the tobacco industry-supported studies, there's a fairly consistent positive result. Uh, and, and that, in fact, has been, has been resolved by just doing more definitive studies that everyone agrees that the protocol uh, is good, and those have been positive. So uh, the tobacco industry was actually successful in creating doubt and confusion in this body of literature. But was then weeded out. But was then weeded out, that's right. Although it still has created enough confusion that skeptics can cling to those negative studies. Don't they do a lot of lobbying as well, Steve? They do, but you know they're really they're being very coy. Like if you read their their websites, like uh, Philip Morris, they say they don't. They never admit there's a connection. They'll never admit their connection. What they say is it's prudent to listen to what the government is saying about their recommendations. You know, something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. So the Surgeon General, we should we should do what they say, but they won't say yes. There's a proven link, you know, between secondhand smoke and and uh, harmful outcomes. They they will never admit it. The, the Surgeon General, his sort of catchphrase, even to the point where I think it was, you know, it's very, very highlighted in this report, is the notion that there is no safe level of secondhand smoke. And 
that may be a, an effective public education campaign, but it's scientifically very suspect. And I think that they unnecessarily water down the accuracy of their science by saying things like that. Because, you know, it's a, there are toxins in cigarette smoke, and all toxins have a threshold level for physiological or yeah, biological it's, it's effects. It's too far-reaching. Yeah, you, of course there are safe levels. I mean, yeah. if I get just a waft of cigarette smoke once in my lifetime, that's going to have <laughs> ill effects on I me. Mean, of course not. There's got to be some threshold where the effects right. become meaningful. And so that's, I think, that's a bad strategy on my point. You, that, that's just grist for the denier's mill. And they do other similar things like that. Like they, they emphasize the aspects of the evidence which may in fact be the weakest scientifically, even though they're the most dramatic, they might have, they have the most dramatic effect on the public. And I think the bottom line is, you know, this, it's an interesting dilemma in the healthcare, public healthcare uh, industry, in that the things that you say affect what people do, and that actually, you can add that up in terms of lives, you know, uh, health and, and li life and death. You know, you could say, if I say X versus Y, X may be more accurate than Y, but if I say X versus Y, that's going to lead to 100,000 extra deaths. If I say Y, I could save 100,000 lives, even though it's not quite as accurate as X. So where, where are the ethics there? And it's very difficult. And I acknowledge it's, it's, it's quite a dilemma. The same is true of vaccines. You know, the CDC does not publicize every little fluctuation in the, in the data that might suggest that there's a risk here or there, because that would constantly be bombarding the public with risks which really are, are, are not legitimate. They say, let's give it time for the scientific community to really sort through this and decide if it's real or not. Uh, but, by, but by playing their cards close to the vest like that, again, they sort of open themselves up for criticism by people who are shrilly trying to say that the you know, vaccines are actually harming people. And the same is kind of true of the, t the tobacco question, is by crafting the message to be most effective rather than scientifically accurate. It may do more long-term harm than good, I guess is the point. But yeah. it's a genuine dilemma. Who does, uh, who's, who's behind uh, the truth campaign? Do you guys know who's who's behind I don't that? know. Did you hear the last one when they said that one of the um, w one of the executives in one of the cigarette manufacturing companies said that most people die in their sleep, so they should ban sleeping? <laughs> but denying correlation. Yeah. That's been their shtick to say co correlation is not causation. Therefore, you can't make an argument that smoking causes cancer just because there's a correlation. Well. You can if the correlation holds up every, no matter which way you look at it. Right. You know, multiple independent correlations can actually point, can triangulate to a causation. I think, I think most people today, though, they, they have a pretty good idea that it's, it causes cancer, it's bad. You know, sure. And anyone that chooses to still do it today is making a personal decision to be disgusting as far as I'm concerned. But Well, let's move on to, uh, to your emails. The first comes from Christopher Lund who gives his location, I assume somewhat tongue-in-cheek, as the USA United Social Agnostics. Christopher writes, Dear Skeptics, I am working my way through your podcasts. If you have covered this, I apologize. Clearly, I have forgotten my critical thinking courses I took in college. There is a subject called binaural beats. Though it sounds wonderful, that is just it. It sounds wonderful. Rather than try to describe and misrepresent it, I will defer to the plethora of info out there. If you Google it, there are a couple of other names for it, too. Let me provide a couple of links, which, uh, of course, we'll put, it, we'll put on our notes page. But basically, what I'll, I'll give you the, the skinny on binaural beats. It's, it's a legitimate neurological phenomenon. If you present 
tones of different frequencies to different to your to the different ears the what you hear in both ears get combined at the brainstem level and you will perceive this sort of fluctuation in in the in the volume of those beats of those tones at a frequency which equals the difference in the frequency between the two originating sounds you so got you it is that the warble noise you hear when you when the two notes are very close to each other but they're not quite in sync if yes if you're listening to like over headphones where each ear is getting a distinct sound well you'll steve if you're tuning an instrument and you have two notes you know usually a lot of stringed inst- instruments musicians will tune those will tune the strings to each other so you'll tune one string right correctly and then if you if you're tuning them when the two notes are very close but a little bit out of sync, you can actually hear a pulsing tone happen that lets yeah. you know that they're not in sync. Is that the same effect? I don't know. I think that's a harmonic uh, a phenomenon. I think you really need to have the headphones in order to get the binaural beats. That's, okay. that's a, more of a neurological phenomenon. It's, a, it's, it's basically an auditory illusion because they don't really exist. You know what I mean? It's that they don't exist in that you can't record them as vibrations of air. It's purely a neurological illusion. Your oh, brain okay. perceives okay. this because of the way it's processing the two sounds. And that's really it. You know, it's kind of an interesting neurological observation. And it was made, in fact, I think over 100 years ago. Why it's interesting today is because in the last you know, 10 or 20 years, there has been a cottage industry of pseudoscience built up around this, uh, this auditory illusion. They basically claim that by listening to, to like tapes you know, over headphones and, cr- and using this binaural beat phenomenon, that they could train your brain to make you more intelligent, uh, improve your ESP, uh, <laughs> make you lose weight. You know, whatever it is that you want to do, you could do it by just training your brain subliminally, as it were, with these binaural beats. It's pure nonsense. They they couple it with uh, some EEG, because your EEGs are sexy. It's like brain waves. So they say you could train your brain waves. And their evidence for this is that if you subject somebody to binaural beats, you know, to the to tones that produce it, their EEG may actually match the binaural beats in frequency. And they say, see, there's evidence that the beats are training the brain. It's actually affecting the brain waves. But, you know, again, that's a complete misrepresentation of what's happening. The same, in fact, will happen if you use, like, a strobe light and flash the light in your eyes at a certain frequency. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, um, that will drive your EEG at the same frequency. That's called photic driving. It's a normal phenomenon. It has absolutely nothing to do with your brain function. And it cannot train your brain to have any kind of preternatural or supernatural ability or even just make you smarter or better at anything. Before this po- in preparation for this podcast, I you know, just did a basic medical literature search on binaural beats to see what was out there. There's really only a couple of articles that are, and they're very small studies, looking at actual clinical effects. And one shows that, yeah, people may, there may be somewhat of an alerting effect to this. You know, it may uh, make you a little bit more alert, you know, than, than, than uh, atonal sound does. But that's it. I mean, there's really, there's obviously nothing about any of the, of the fantastic claims that are being made in the marketing of these things. So, uh, it's first of all, the effect was only while they were wearing the headphones. It did not persist p- past that. So there's no evidence that it's doing anything to your brain. And that wasn't even replicated, so we don't even know if that is a legitimate effect. But even if we take that at face value, you can't extrapolate that from any, again, of the, of the sales pitches that are being made for these products. Any thinking person knows 
that there is only one proven way to actually train your brain waves, and that is, of course, by listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the, the bottom line is there's, there's no easy path to making your brain function better. You can't just you know, listen to tapes in your sleep and learn Italian. You, know, you, just, you, you have to actually do the cognitive work to, to make your brain function better. Work. <laughs> the second email it comes from Mike Fattori, uh, and he asks us uh, the following question. I have a suggestion for a topic. There is a scientist by the name of Aubrey de Grey. His shtick is proclaiming that through the application of science, we can extend human life by several thousand years. His ideas are an amalgam of nanotechnology, molecular biology, biomechanics, etc. He seems like such a nut that it amazes me that anyone takes him seriously, and yet he seems to be routinely written up in popular magazines such as Technology Review, MIT, and Fortune. I don't know whether you would call what he preaches pseudoscience. He is different from your run-of-the-mill crackpot, but his ideas are so out there that he seems nuts. And yet, as I mentioned, he gets a lot of popular press. Uh, anyway, I enjoy your podcast. I think the ideas discussed are quite valuable. Well, thanks, Mike. A very interesting question, although I think Mike used the term nuts even more than we tend to do in this podcast. <laughs> uh, but, Bob, you, you actually were at a conference recently with Aubrey de Grey. Yes, I was in uh, New Haven. He, he talked, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. I enjoyed it. I, I've read a lot about him. I've listened to tons of podcasts with him on it. And he, this guy is is com pretty compelling from my point of view. Granted, it's it's a struggle that I've always got to keep at the forefront of my mind as a skeptic, not to let my biases and my and my strong desires to color my my assessment. But uh, but I, I I prepared a little bit of an overview just to give you an idea what this guy is all about. And I'd like to I did talk with him. He was more than willing to, to do a podcast for us. We'll uh, hopefully get him on the show. And I, I'm just dying to see you and him, you and he go head to head, Steve. So our, our emailer, Bob, perceived him as a nut job. And right. you perceived him as compelling. Well, a absolutely. That, that's absolutely. Quite, a, let that's me, quite divergent. Ab well, let me, let me just give you a little assessment of uh, his point of view. And then... Um, and then you can go from there. And then after the, our interview with him, you'll, might, you'll probably have a better idea of what he's all about. A couple things about the email. And, Mike, thanks for the email. You did mention that uh, he's claiming that uh, science can extend human life by several thousand years. Actually, that's a bit misleading. He's, one of his big claims is that within 25 years, he sees, uh, with, with the proper research, he sees maybe a 50% chance of extending life 20 or 30 years. He, he does believe that in the farther future that we will be able to greatly extend that. But right now, he's mainly focused on 20 or 30 years of improvement as, as a start. Just a little bio on uh, Aubrey de Grey. He's a biogerontologist at the University of Cambridge in England. He's uh, trained as a computer scientist. Uh, he's, Wait, uh, does he, Bob, does he have a British accent? Yes. Oh, then I have to believe what okay. he says. Okay. <laughs> totally good. All right, next, next topic. <laughs> um, he's, uh, he, he's a self-taught biologist, but he does have his Ph.D. in biology. His basic idea about this, a lot of money is needed for this research, and it's going to take a lot of time, but his whole attitude on aging is that, that it is essentially a side effect of being alive. It's, it's a side effect of metabolism. Uh, and he, what he wants to do is he wants to unlink, his idea is to unlink pathology from aging. And he's come up with these seven manifestations of aging that, that lead to frailty and, and eventually death. Let me lay out a few of these. Uh, the loss of cells that we need. 
They're the accumulation of cells that we don't need. Uh, DNA mutations in the nucleus, DNA mutations uh, in the cell's mitochondria, one other I'll say, the formation of cross-linked proteins outside of cells. Now you've got these seven things that, that slowly accumulate, and he's, uh, he's come up with solutions. His plan is to, you know, using his engineering history, he's come up with a plan to address seven, each of these one by one. And his goal, if, if you want to look at a bigger picture, is he thinks that we might be able to achieve what's, what he calls life extension escape velocity. We are essentially extremely complicated machines, and eventually you know, we'll be able to engineer our way out of, out of death. And uh, to, me, to me, that just, it just makes so much sense. And I know you've got to guard against that kind of thought. You, got to, you can't be so convinced that, no, you, know, you don't want to get confirmation bias where you know, you're only looking at the positive things, facts that support your belief. But to me, that just makes a lot of sense that death, that death is an engineering problem, that eventually we, we, we will lick it. Let me, let me quickly give the other side. I mean, first of all, I think this, this is an excellent topic, and we need to spend more time on this to really get into it. And if we have him on our show, obviously that will be a time to really go over it in detail. Uh, it's also, you know, again, pseudoscience is not this clean dichotomy where there's something's either pure science or pure pseudoscience. And I think this is a good example of something that's kind of in the middle. I mean, this guy's obviously a legitimate scientist. His ideas are grounded in, in legitimate science. But... He, you know he's kind of taking it to a new level, and there are some there are a lot of legitimate criticisms in in what he to, of what he is proposing. Uh, and just to just to, to name a few, he is sort of counting on the fact that there aren't uh, a lot of effects of aging that we haven't discovered yet, and that's in my opinion uh, a big leap of faith, which which is probably not justified. I I would, uh, I would disagree with that. I don't think he, he, he just discounts that. And, and if, if there are other effects of aging, like uh, uh, types of diseases that we might get that we may, maybe we wouldn't anticipate because we just never don't live that long, I mean, wouldn't some of these therapies actually uh, deal, with, deal with them as well? Well, that's the whole point is we don't know. But again, you know, he's, he's not claiming that he has the cure for aging right now. He's just saying right. this is how I think we should do research, and this is, this is the path of future research that will likely – and, and most quickly lead to significant results. And that's a very interesting and legitimate debate to have. Where should we be spending our research dollars? Uh, and you ha in, my, in my experience, you know, there needs to be a proper balance between basic science and applied science. He's basically saying, all right, we have, we, let's take the basic science we have now and, and focus it now directly in applied science to try to fix the problems we know are there and assume that problems that we don't know about are not going to be significant. And the, right. the, the, I think the most, most legitimate criticism of what he's proposing is that, you know, we, we may just, we, maybe we're just not at that point yet. I think uh, we, we may have to spend more time doing basic science research because, because if you prematurely go to applied science, you end up wasting your time and not really achieving anything. I, I agree. If you, if you go prematurely... Well, Steve, I think to simplify it, he's... he's formulating an outline or a you know a path in which he believes that people should follow scientists should follow and which way the research should go in order to tackle these things i don't think he's saying this is the absolute way to do it but he's putting his best judgment on the table and saying this is the direction i think we ought to yeah go. and i think that this exactly we should have this debate and it's a very fascinating debate and a lot of topics come up but again my take look you're reading his writings 
and you know, and also written debates between him and his critics. I think on the balance, he I think is prematurely arguing to shift completely for applied research, and I think he is systematically underestimating or downplaying what we don't know on a basic science level. But that's you know that's an opinion based upon your reading of the research. But that's this is what we we need to have experts debating that exact question. Well, well, we have to come back to this topic because this is a very interesting topic. But we're but we're out of time for this episode. I also want to interview uh, him. I yeah, will I think get we him. Should, I will get him. He's, I think he's... we should do, we should have him on the show. But it's, it's time to move on to our interview. So let's do that. Joining us now is uh, author and investigative journalist. Gerald Posner. Gerald, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Uh, great to be with you, Stephen, and everyone else. And just to review, uh, Gerald Posner is an acclaimed author of, of many excellent books. Uh, I think my favorite of yours is Case Closed, which is, I think, the definitive debunking of uh, JFK assassination conspiracy theories, but more importantly, just a really good history of Lee Harvey Oswald and his involvement with the assassination also of Killing the Dream, James Earl Ray and the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., more recently, Why America Slept, The Failure to Prevent 9-11, and Secrets of the Kingdom, the Inside Story of the Saudi-U.S. Connection. Now, let's just, for a little background, you actually started your career as a lawyer and graduated, like I said, at the University of California at Berkeley and then Hastings Law School, and you were actually in private practice as a lawyer for a while, is that right? Yeah, you, you can't actually use that against me that I was a lawyer. Um, I'm the best <laughs> type of lawyer right now, which is non-practice. Uh, uh, the uh, I, I did start out as a lawyer and actually was doing a uh, lawsuit uh, against the German government and the Mengele family, the family of Joseph Mengele, the so-called angel of death from the Auschwitz concentration camp, um, for a group of survivors who had been experimented on by Mengele. And the lawsuit went nowhere. But um, I had like 25,000 pages of documents on Mengele's life on the run when I finished all the legal work. And uh, with a co-author from England who had also never published, uh, we put out a biography on Mengele back in 1986. And that was the beginning of um, the, the investigative and writing career. I sort of got hooked and never went back to law. Yeah, well, that was my next question was how we made the transition, but that, and that answers it. i got to say, just as before we start talking about some of the specific books, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to heap some praise upon you because uh, the thing that most impressed me about your approach, especially since it's, I think it's in stark contrast to, to many pieces of history and journalism that we read today, is that not only are you doing exhaustive research before you, you put pen to paper, but you, you seem to really let the evidence you know, go where it goes. It leads, the evidence determines the story that you ultimately tell. And I believe, um, you know, I heard you say before, for example, with uh, Case Closed, you started that book thinking that you were going to uncover some particular conspiracy theory. Is that right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, you know, looking at it without knowing the facts or the details, um, you look at this murder of this 24-year-old uh, assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, just two days later in police custody by a fellow with mob connections, Jack Ruby, and it, until you've investigated the case, you think to yourself, oh, that looks like a silencing. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there is something there. Uh, but what you said a moment ago, though, is absolutely key, and that is um, any journalist worth their, their weight in salt uh, 
should, and, and, and many do and many don't, but the good ones do, that is just follow the facts. Let them take you where they're going to take you. I've had conspiracy theorists say, you know, you just had made up your mind that it was Oswald alone, and you went out and you filled up a book um, that had those facts to support that conclusion. And I always think to myself, it goes to show you how little they know about journalism. Mm -hmm. For somebody who pays their mortgage from writing, as I do, it's a much bigger story if you go ahead and investigate the Kennedy assassination for a couple of years and you come back with the definitive evidence that, in fact, there was a conspiracy and you could convince the Dan Rathers, the then at that time Peter Jennings, the Tom Brokaws of the world, the New York Times, that you had found the incontrovertible proof that, in fact, there was a conspiracy in the assassination of JFK. You've got a book bigger than all the president's men, Woodard and Bernstein, rolled up into one. Mm. You come back from a couple of years of work with the conclusion that the Warren Commission basically got it right, and that doesn't get anybody very excited, including your publisher. That's right. So, you know, in, in terms of your financial um, interest, the, the financial interest is always there to, try to prove the most outlandish case, but if it's not there, if the facts don't make it, unfortunately, you have to go with them, even if it's not a very sensational conclusion. That's right. That's a very interesting observation, and I think there's a lot of analogies you can draw between the difference between, like, real history and pseudo-history or, or or real journalism and pseudo journalism and science and pseudoscience because we often even joke joke to each other about the fact that you know all the money is on the other side the non-skeptical side like for me as a physician if i endorsed some you know wacky pseudoscientific medical modality i could be a millionaire i mean it'd be really yes. easy for me to make a lot of money if i just had absolutely no ethics and morals and didn't care about the truth and what you're saying is basically it's the same in your profession as well yeah, very much so, although what's interesting is that in your case, you would know, for instance, that you had given up your ethics and morals, that you were endorsing some bit of quackery in order just to make um, a, a killing financially. I have found that with many of the, the hardcore conspiracy theorists, and I'm not just talking about the JFK case, but whether it's on 9-11 and the fact that they think the buildings are, you know, had been imploded or mm -hmm. whether it happens to deal with Princess Di being killed by a nefarious plot by British intelligence, at the behest of the Queen, that many of them aren't just charlatans out there to make a quick buck, but they are true believers. Somehow their brain is wired differently, and they see and read the same evidence that we are looking at, but interpret it completely differently. They also often base their conclusions on bogus evidence and witnesses that are false and, and documents that have been picked apart just for you know to support one proposition. But it's really fascinating to me often how they can either dismiss evidence that it is quite clear and convincing on the one hand, or otherwise take evidence that we all accept as being valid and somehow turn it on its head in its interpretation. Um, they are, in mm -hmm. fact, often true believers. Yes. No, I agree with you. And, I mean, they, and that, that phenomenon that you're describing exists in, in the pseudoscience arena as well, I think. And there's still always that spectrum from charlatans to true believers, and yes. they exist everywhere. But I, and tell me if you agree with this. I think that the key difference is what exactly what you were accused of falsely, and that is starting with the conclusion, then working backwards. I think the conspiracy theorists, just like many pseudoscientists, start with a desired conclusion, whether just because it's fantastical or because they are 
uh, enamored of conspiracy theories. That's the way, as you say, their brain is hardwired. Whatever. They have a conclusion that they want to believe. And then, taking the, the great number of facts that exist, it's really easy to reverse engineer you know, a, a story to fit your conclusion. Absolutely. And I, I see it constantly done in the, in the books that I read, in which it's clear to me that... Um, and books are some of the worst offenders, worse even than articles. Articles, mm. if they're written at least for a good publication, the New Yorker, the New York Times Magazine, some others, there's some vetting that goes on in terms of fact-checkers. That doesn't mean that they always reach the right conclusion because you know, you're still basing your conclusions on those facts and the, and the journalists may have their own axe to grind. But there's some fact-checking that goes on in books. People, the lay person uh, who's not connected with publishing often thinks that books have more gravitas because they, you know, they do weigh a couple of pounds and they, and they do cost $20 or more and therefore they must be uh, a, a bit more on the, on the side of being right than just some p a magazine that somebody throws away at the end of the week. But that's not true at all. There's no fact-checking that really goes on in books. There are lawyers that look at the books to make sure they aren't libelous beforehand. Um, but beyond that, there's no checking to see that what somebody has put in is right. And I often find books in which somebody has reached an outlandish conclusion, and they've gone ahead and cherry-picked the evidence or relied upon witnesses or evidence that really is outlandish and, and false, and then just bolster their case in 500 bloated pages of nonsense. <laughs> right, right. And that, but what, before we just leave the topic of journalism in general, give me your assessment of the state of journalism, you know, at least in this country today. How would you characterize it? Well, I, I hate to sound like, um, uh, uh, although I will sound like, um, a, uh, <laughs> go ahead, go after ahead. apologizing beforehand, <laughs> a cynic, um, but I'm increasingly cynical of the state of journalism because um, it, 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 I used to say, you know, it was like infotainment. We, you know, it, we've all said that at some point, but the infotainment used to be uh, shows like uh, Entertainment Tonight or something like that. It used to be People Magazine. And now increasingly, if you pick up Time or Newsweek, the cover story is about you know your finances, how you can retire safely. It's, it's sort of the lifestyle or, or health piece that used to be somewhere inside the magazine is now the lead story. Uh, the five-minute piece at the end of the evening news that used to be the lifestyle piece will now be the second or third story. Uh, and and uh, much of what passes for journalism and increasingly in this need to fill 24-7 on a real news breaking day, on a day of 9-11 or on a day when uh, you know the challenger explodes, it's easy to fill the news because you've got a lot going on. Um, to, uh, but, uh, but often um, it's just remarkable to me what pads out the news cycle. And uh, I, you know, I, I think that I would have a tough time in 2006 getting my Mengele book published that was published 20 years ago. I think today a publisher, much more bottom line oriented, would say, gee, angel of death, uh, Nazi murderer, we've had a lot of books about the Holocaust, you don't have any name at all, uh, who's going to read that, why should we publish it, thanks a lot, see you tomorrow. I see far fewer uh, serious books being published by major publishers, and the same in magazine articles as well, and that's a shame. Yeah. No, I, I unfortunately have to agree with your cynicism, and I would I would add my personal experience with with the, with journalists is is very negative in that what I've experienced is that they the the uh, the writer whether it's they're producing a news segment or writing a, a, an article they know what their conclusion is what the story mm -hmm. is ahead of time. There's only a few sort of thematic stories that they tell, the ones that they think sell or people will read, and then they're really just looking for quotes that they can 
p- use to basically put together the story they already know they're going to tell. And it's very hard to push them off of the conclusion that they come into their, you know, quote-unquote investigation with. You know what I mean? I, I, know, I think that's very true. As a matter of fact, recently I was interviewed about a year ago, maybe a little less than that, for um, a uh, documentary being done by, for Discovery on the JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, New York-based producer approached me, and they clearly had done a number of interviews beforehand, and he told me that they were doing a reanalysis of the case and that it was going to be very fair. And this was one of the few times that I actually agreed to an interview without knowing more about the production, but I knew I was flipping a coin, exactly. I didn't know. They clearly had an idea of what they were going to do with that documentary before they came to me. I didn't know if I was just going to be interviewed to be the foil to present the uh, the idea that it was a lone assassin and that I would mm-hmm. be torn apart through the rest of the piece, right. or whether in fact they were being honest and it was a fair piece. It turned out to be fair, and I was quite pleased with the final product, but uh, y- you just don't know, because I agree with that, that many of them come in, especially television journalists or magazine people, pieces or a newspaper or they're on a short deadline and they're hoping to get one quote from you and if you give it to them it doesn't matter that the rest of the interview was quite uh, lucid uh, you may just give that one inflammatory quote that they need and that's what they're running with that's right and since we since we you bring up the JFK assassination let's talk about that because you know from a skeptical point of view of course that's the sort of the meatiest book that you have the JFK assassination is probably the biggest magnet for conspiracy theories out there, although 9-11 is giving it a good run for its money right now. But give, right. Us, a, give us just in your – how would you summarize the, the case you know, for Lee Harvey Oswald being a lone assassin? Well, I mean, just in, in a very brief summary, I think that the forensics evidence is overwhelming that there was only one shooter at Dealey Plaza that day. I don't care if there were ten assassins there. Only one person shot and hit the president and the governor of Texas on that day, and the forensics evidence for that is overwhelming. It also, the physical and forensics evidence is overwhelming that those shots came from behind. Uh, in the uh, vicinity of the Texas School Book Depository, the building where Oswald was last seen. And coupled with that, Understanding Oswald, knowing Oswald, following him on that day, what he did subsequently in killing a Dallas policeman, it leaves me no doubt at all that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin of John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963. And as a matter of fact, I'm surprised that so many conspiracy theorists on that case spend so much of their time in Didi Plaza. What I mean by that is they spend much of their time on trying to prove the the so-called single bullet, one bullet that hit both the president and the governor really didn't happen, that it was a magic mm-hmm. bullet, that there were additional assassins, uh, that uh, the headshot had to come from the front, which would have meant another shooter. Uh, <laughs> that forensics evidence is really definitive that that's not the case. Uh, I think the much more difficult question, which I also answer to my satisfaction that it's Oswald, but would be for a conspiracy theorist to say, all right, I'll give you all the forensics evidence. I will grant you that it was a shooter from behind. I'll grant you that it was Oswald. But prove to me that Oswald wasn't doing it for somebody else, that he was mm-hmm. just doing it for himself, that he wasn't acting for the Cubans, mm-hmm. uh, he wasn't acting for a group of mobsters, uh, that you know, it was his own motivation. And in the end, I think that the evidence around Oswald does prove that, but that would be a tougher challenge than the one conspiracy theorist often throw out. Right. It's well. It's, it's hard to prove a negative, and they're they're shifting the burden, you know, 
to say prove that there isn't a conspiracy. It's that well, actually, you should prove there is a conspiracy. I mean, well, where, that's where's right. the positive evidence for a conspiracy? Well, that's what's so interesting. You know, it, it, one, two, or three years out from the assassination, uh, the the documents hadn't yet been released by the Warren Commission. The material on the autopsy wasn't yet public. Uh, you could understand why a conspiracy theorist could say it's not my obligation to prove there's a conspiracy. I don't have the evidence yet. Yeah. But uh, forty three years later uh, and we're still waiting for somebody to come up with the evidence the deathbed confession the, the, you know the one file it seems a little bit long to me and now you have it's very very interesting but you know conspiracy theorists not only in the Kennedy assassination but on other cases as well they shift the sand underneath you in the sense that you go ahead and prove something and you think you've done it to the, uh, the, your own satisfaction the, and the satisfaction of um, scientists and, and those who are concerned about evidence and investigators and then they'll move the target and the perfect example in the Kennedy case is the Zapruder film mm -hmm. the so-called home movie of the assassination it had been cited repeatedly by conspiracy theorists before I did case close as evidence that there was a fatal shot from the front of the president and after um, uh, other sort of forensics analysis that I cite in the book really showed, I think, without any question, that that film helps establish a shooter from behind. A new group of conspiracy theorists challenged and started to challenge and still do the authenticity of the film itself, right. wow. claiming that it's been <laughs> altered by the CIA, that there are frames missing, that one person is wearing one color shoe in one frame and a different color shoe in another based upon a shadow being cast. So it's absolutely fantastic that for decades that film was accepted as being Bible true evidence by conspiracy theorists who cited it to prove a conspiracy. Once they realized the evidence actually worked against them, they started to say, well, of course it does because the evidence is false. So right. you never really can pin them down. I see a book title here called The Great Zapruder Film Hoax, Deceit and Deception in the Death of JFK. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just one of many titles that uh, seem to be, like you say, Gerald, uh, tearing into the Zapruder film as if it were doctored or, uh, you know, certainly a hoax that's been uh, perpetrated on the American people. And, you know, what's great about that is that you cited one there called the Great uh, Hoax. You know, it leaves open the possibility for even more books down the road, the Greater Hoax, the right. even greater hoax. There seems to be a never-ending... That's right. What? I wanted to do for a while, I wanted to do a sequel to Case Closed called Case Still Closed, but I could never get <laughs> publisher in doing that. Gerald, what do you think invigorates the uh, the conspiracy theorists in the for the Kennedy assassination? What venerates them? Why, why so passionate and still so loud after all these years? Well, I, I think that their shrill sort of um, enthusiasm for the case is still there in, uh, on a hardcore group, but is re being replaced, as you mentioned before, in some ways by the, the new raucous uh, grumblings about 9-11 um, mm. and maybe a new generation around that. But for many who lived through the Kennedy assassination, it's not an assassination, by the way. Uh, it's not a case. It's not a conspiracy that attracts 18- and 19-year-olds. Uh, when right, I see the conventions right. of the conspiracy buffs, they're often people who had been alive at the time of the assassination. Mm. Um, they've held this belief for years. They've been convinced that the real murderers are still out there. And uh, it's very interesting that when Case Closed came out in 93 and was well-received and became a bestseller, uh, that further 
convince them that a conspiracy was afoot because here was the 30th anniversary of the assassination. Oliver Stone had put out his film two years earlier. There was a renewed interest in the case, and suddenly the official media is endorsing a book that says it's Oswald alone, which must mean, in fact, that they were getting close to the truth and, and that I was a dupe working for the CIA. Uh, so I think that they are still sort of, they are soldiering on in the belief that somewhere out there there is the truth, but they certainly seem to me um, a sorry group in that, uh, you know, after four decades you, and you haven't come up with any evidence, you really have to hang your head in shame. <laughs> right. Here, here. And it, Agreed. It's interesting. One, one quick comment. It's interesting, and I wonder if you ever looked at the, the Lincoln assassination, because basically there was a generation of conspiracy theories about Abraham Lincoln's assassination that eventually, you know, died out, and we don't, most people today don't even know about it. And I wonder if the Kennedy assassination is going to be the same thing, that as you, you seem to be suggesting that it's the generation of people who were alive at the time and that the next generation is moving on to other conspiracies. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that's definitely true about Lincoln. There's, there's no doubt about that. And there have been people that have, uh, have studied both assassinations in, con in conjunction. The, although I think one of the things that may keep the Kennedy assassination alive longer than even... Lincoln is, is that it's really the first television assassination. There's mm -hmm. still the Zapruder film. There's still the ability to look, as there is on 9 11, the mm -hmm. destruction of the towers. You can watch the Zapruder film. You can go out and get, rent a DVD of it or buy a DVD of it. You don't have the equivalent on the Lincoln assassination. You can watch that film and come up with your own theory about what happened on the headshot. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald seems a much more contemporary figure than John Wilkes Booth. And yes, I agree that given 150 years down the road and the, and the almost I inevitable insertion of another national tragedy like an assassination that may well replace the Kennedy one of interest, um, that Kennedy may have a, a life of its own in some ways uh, uh, that may be a little bit more vigorous than, than even Lincoln. Bob, you had a question? Yeah, I was going to say, um, do the do a lot of the uh, conspiracy theorists are they are they still pointing to you know classified information that the government has hasn't released and and like kind of like pinning their hopes on maybe there's some nuggets in there that when they eventually are declassified that it will finally show you know that there was a conspiracy. I mean, how much information is still classified about uh, the assassination? You know, Bob, a remarkably small amount of information still classified about the assassination. In regards to the Warren Commission, it's less now than two-tenths of one percent still related to some material on Cuba, uh, which okay. will be coming out soon. On, in terms of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, it's still running at about eight percent, and those are still files that were considered sensitive for intelligence matters. Most of it related to the Soviet Union, but hopefully will be released in the next few years. I'm a big believer in release the files. Let's get it all out there. Right. I do think that there are cons some conspiracy theorists who um, believe that they will find the smoking gun in those remaining files. But, they, but my favorite, my favorite position, my personal favorite, is um, Peter Dale Scott, who is an English professor uh, at the University of California at Berkeley, my alma mater. And I think that Peter Dale Scott is absolutely humiliated that I ever went to Berkeley because he just can't <laughs> stand me. And although he's an English professor, he's made himself a historian on the Kennedy assassination. I use that term loosely, but he's written some books. And in one of his books... Um, he has some of the most outlandish theories. He has a thing he calls the negative template, which is if you go into a file, uh, let's say Lee Harvey Oswald's file, and you found a file for Oswald at the CIA, and you looked inside of it, and you expected to find evidence that he was an employee of the CIA or an agent of the CIA, and you did not find that, 
that's the negative template. Since all uh. the rest of the evidence points to him being a CIA agent, you should have found that. The fact that it was not in the file is exactly what you expect. They've removed it, therefore proving that he was a CIA agent. Uh. So under that theory, you could go into the files, and then the last file was released on the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and the last file was released in the Warren Commission, and nothing proves a conspiracy. People like Peter Dale Scott would say exactly what we expected. They cleansed the files. Therefore, there was a conspiracy. The, um, and so that's my, that's my personal favorite. Well, they're bulletproof. You know, That's the nature of conspiracy theories. They're completely and utterly bulletproof. And just the fact that they can use that kind of you know, missing lack of evidence as evidence. And we've seen it before, Steve. We, yeah. We've seen it before. And it's, it is. It's amazing it's what, what the human yeah. mind can it is, but you know, one of the things, gentlemen, that I, uh, I mentioned this, and you may well be aware of it, and some of your listeners may not, but uh, in 94, I did a story on the Berlin Document Center, which was uh, a, the largest, at that time, repository of captured Third Reich documents in the world, captured by American forces at the end of World War II, maintained by the Americans. It was being transferred over to German custody then. I did a, a long article for the New Yorker, and the head of the Berlin Document Center, the American director, David Marwell, um, at the time told me, I asked him about security at the archives, thinking that they had guards posted and they had people watching inside the room. And he said they had increased security over recent years, not because they were having thefts of documents, although they had had some people come in in earlier years mm -hmm. and steal a document because it had a signature by Goering or Goebbels that they would try to sell as an autograph collection. Uh, mm -hmm. But they had problems from people trying to insert documents, something I had never thought about. So wow. they would have somebody Whoa. not coming in and trying to put in a document that proved the final solution never happened. Nothing like that. But they had amateur historians who were, their area of passion and compulsion was, let's Jeez. say, one aspect of the Battle of the Bulge. And they would try to put in a forgery of a document that changed the line of, the chain of command in the Battle of the Bulge so that a future historian would come in to do archival research and might rely upon that document in laying out what had happened in that battle. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating that people not only were committed to their view of history, whether right or wrong, but they were so committed to it that they're willing to change it by falsely inserting documents into the record. So it would be the equivalent of somebody having access to the files in the Kennedy case in the National Archives for the House Select Committee on Assassination. Instead of trying to steal something, putting a document in that appeared real for all uh, ostensible purposes. And that's the danger of wow. people who are so committed that they're willing even to change the nature of research for real historians. It's rather frightening. It's vile. Absolutely yes, it vile. Is. Yeah. Well, let's change gears a little bit to your, to your two more recent books, uh, Why America Slept the Failure to Prevent 9-11. Now, this is you know, primarily about the uh, period of time leading up to 9-11 and, and why the powers that be failed to prevent it from happening. You, you don't spend really a lot of time talking about the conspiracy theories that arose after 9-11. Is that right? That's right, because it, it, they really had not arisen when I was writing this book. Uh, I mean, the real idea for this book started uh, shortly after the attacks themselves, when uh, 
my wife Trisha and uh, I were uh, volunteering our time doing whatever we could. We lived in New York at the time. We were there that day when it took place and uh, we were essentially doing what a lot of New Yorkers were doing. There was no place to give blood because the Red Cross wasn't taking that. There were no injuries, unfortunately. You either right. died or you didn't from right. the, the blast. That's right. That's um, right. But we were sort of, you know, giving our time, handing out uh, uh, material to the, the firemen as they came out. And one night around uh, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, we sat down next to a, a young girl. She turned out to be a college student. We were talking to her about what she did, and she said, what do you do? And we said, we're journalists. And she said, well, what are you doing here? Why don't you go out and find out what happened? And it was sort of like a light bulb went off in our head. And uh, I approached my publisher and said, you know, this can't have happened without there being a major intelligence a screw up somewhere along the way. Let me go out and find out what it was. And they said, go and do it. And then in the next 18 months of that, um, it seemed like a lot of newspapers, magazines, and, and, and TV journalists were doing the same thing, trying to find out what happened. Um, I actually had uncovered the information about uh, uh, Agent Raleigh and the FBI and what took place in Minnesota and with uh, Zakari uh, early on. Um, uh, with Musawi, but um, unfortunately that broke before I published. So, you know, that's just the nature of doing a book. Sometimes right. you get things fresh and then you lose them before you get out. Uh, but uh, it turned out to be really a book about what went wrong in the lead up. And then the theory started to come out after I had published. Well, so let's go back and talk about what you spent most of your time writing about then in that book. So tell us, again, in a nutshell, what did go wrong before 9-11? Just about everything you could imagine. Look, it's always easy. Mm-hmm. Everyone looks bright on Monday morning looking back at the game, you know, or <laughs> gee, right. after the stock market crash of 2000, we all know where we should have had our money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking back at this event, uh, dissecting the evidence and, and knowing what happened. So, uh, But notwithstanding that, this isn't just a case uh, of, uh, of looking back and saying, gee, you should have realized in 1993 that Osama bin Laden was a big threat, or you should have picked up uh, you know, this terrorist when they were first coming in. Uh, the, this is a case where incompetence reigns supreme at times inside the FBI and the CIA. Um, not just the failure to share information, but the competition between the two uh, worked to our detriment. And there may be no better uh, example of it than when the CIA followed two of the 9-11 terrorists into the country in, in January of, uh, uh, of 2000 and um, then lost them immediately because they can't do domestic surveillance, did not pass the information over to the FBI, had watched these two at a meeting in Malaysia with other terrorists, known terrorists, um, knew who they were, knew one had a permanent access visa to the United States, and then literally a month before the 9-11 attacks uh, said to itself, as uh, the number of warnings about a possible um, uh, terrorist attack grew over the summer, um, inside the CIA there was a meeting in which they said, gee, what about those two guys who came in who we lost? Um, and uh, someone said, maybe we ought to tell the FBI. And they did, in fact, tell the FBI. And the FBI then did a short hunt for them and couldn't find them before the 9-11 attack tax, obviously. Even though they were living openly in San Diego, they had bank accounts in their own name, they had a car they bought in their own name, they had California driver's license, uh, uh, they uh, were listed in the phone book in their own name. So, so, they, were di- so they were deep wow. undercover, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, deep, deep <laughs> undercover. And nobody, of course, thought of telling the FAA, even though there were warnings of a hijacking over the summer, and the FAA could have red-listed them, these men bought the tickets for their 9-11 flights in their own names. So, yeah. uh, the uh, now... If we had stopped them, if they had been red-listed and we picked them up, 
we still wouldn't have known about the plot, and they wouldn't have necessarily given it up, but we might have inadvertently broken it up, or we might have spooked the rest of the teams. We don't know. It, it's a bit like uh, what the FBI agent Rowley said in, in, in Minneapolis about the Musawi case. We could have gotten lucky, and that's absolutely true. You're also pretty critical of the Clinton administration's de- uh, dealing with sec- with bin- Osama bin Laden and security in general in the eight years you know prior to 9/11. I, I am in fact critical um, uh, of the Clinton administration, but I must say that um, I've often said this that I'm pretty much an, e- uh, an equal opportunity blamer. Um, I blame. <laughs> blame both the Republicans and Democrats for their handling of this before 9-11. And I, Clinton gets the brunt of the blame because of the fact that he was in office for a critical eight-year period leading up to 9-11, a period that saw the first bombing of the first World Trade Center, um, that saw the action in Somalia with Black Hawk Down, that saw the, the bombings in Saudi Arabia that killed Americans in 96, that you know, saw the attack on the coal. Uh, so he was there during a period of time in which bin Laden was indicted by a grand jury in 96, um, been out and moved from Somalia to Pakistan. But I happen to believe, whether right or wrong, this is my firmly held belief, that if the Republicans had been in charge over that same eight-year period, not much would have been different. The country didn't wake up until 9-11 took place. And then even George Bush seemed energized in a way he had not seen beforehand. Um, if 9-11 hadn't happened, um, I don't think we'd be hearing the word terrorism much. In the entire election in 2000, it was mentioned once in the presidential debates by Al Gore in response to a question not based on terror. But that was it. It wasn't a political wow. issue. This was not an yeah, issue. Definitely, definitely true. You know, Joel, I've heard it said... Uh, going back even further, all the way back to 1975, that it was the church committee uh, led by Senator Frank Church that really sort of, uh, well, I don't know. You know, people use the term gutted, the intelligence agency. I mean, really, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act really hurt intelligence. Have you found that to be the case in your studies? Well, there's no doubt that the church committee, right, did in fact by calling the CIA a, a rogue organization and the, the restrictions that were placed on it, morale was probably its lowest after the church committee hearings. And I've talked to agents who are since retired who said it was like a death chamber over there. Nobody was holding their head up very high. Uh, so I think that hurt. But I also happen to say that the analysis that I did in Why America Theft really castigates the CIA, uh, notwithstanding what happened to the church committee. There was never an emphasis to try to infiltrate uh, radical Islamic organizations. The emphasis was always on the Soviet Union until the Soviet Union fell. And then really they were looking for somebody else over the intelligence group and they found them sometimes in you know what was happening in Eastern Europe. But nobody at CIA said um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the next threat over here is Islamic fundamentalism. Let's start to target them. And we all know now after 9-11 the FBI and the CIA had a scramble to find uh, analysts who were fluent in Arabic to be able to handle the incoming information. Right. So let me right. let me tie it back in a, a little bit to the the conspiracy theories. Then, would you say this analogy is uh, is accurate? Now, just like with the JFK assassination, the the biggest thing that debunks the conspiracy theorists is, uh, as you say, really proving the case that Lee Harvey Oswald was the shooter and in fact probably was working on his own. Would you say that the biggest case against 9-11 conspiracy theories is the case you build that in fact this was an uh, Islamic fundamentalist terrorist act and the government really was asleep at the switch? Would you say that's fair? 
Well, I, I do think it's fair, except that um, of, uh, what see, one of the things um, that I wanted to see after the publication of Why America Slept is what, how, what possibly could the conspiracy theorists who hated me so much after the JFK book <laughs> say, because here I was criticizing the very government organizations that they also disliked, the FBI and the CIA, uh, what could they possibly say in criticism of that? And I went on the internet and looked for uh, Gerald Posner 9-11, and I found some immediately that said I was again, and I may be far paraphrasing here, but you'll find them yourself if you take a look. I was again serving my paymasters. I love that one. Um, because what I was doing was diverting attention from the fact that this was really a government and Bush-led conspiracy by making it look as though it was all sort of incompetence and that it was really a Muslim extremist plot. So, see, again, I've diverted the evidence from the real uh, nefarious plotters, yeah. the government, in order to, to pin it on somebody else. And, and I must say that... Um, I really am surprised. I should not be surprised any longer at what conspiracy theorists come up with. But after 9-11, if you had asked me a month later if I thought there would be conspiracies about this, um, I really would have said unlikely. Um, I've been surprised at the extent to which they have taken uh, root and grown with some enthusiasm and become widespread beyond just um, a fringe group. The, the evidence seems so overwhelming to me here of what took place, mm -hmm. uh, at least the physical act that day, that I didn't think you could tamper with that, but they are. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating sociological experiment where you have an extremely well-documented historical event. I mean, there's, a, there's an overabundance of physical evidence. We actually have, you know, film, multiple cameras, you know, filming the jets plowing into the towers. And yet the conspiracy, th you know, no amount of evidence is too much for conspiracy theorists to overcome. They can still find their anomalies and run with them, you know. It, I, can just hear, I can just hear them say, the evidence is too perfect. You know that that wouldn't surprise me if they said if, right. so, if they said that. You're absolutely right. And as a matter of fact, the thing that I've heard now uh, a number of times is that uh, the hijackers were s induced somehow by U.S. agents who were posing as their friends or collaborators, or possibly even Israelis, um, to go ahead and hijack these planes, thinking that that was their mission. And then once on the planes, of course, the planes were controlled like drones, and they were they were running the World Trade Center, so that the hijackers, the terrorists, did not know this was a suicide mission. It was one that was hoisted on them by more nefarious forces. And what I think irritates me the most about this is not just that it mocks the, the memory of the thousands dead from that day, but that as with the Kennedy assassination, as with uh, James Earl Ray killing Martin Luther King, and here with these 19 hijackers killing thousands of Americans, the conspiracy theorists excuse and let off the hook the people with blood on their hands. Right. Uh, they do it time and time again, and I, I just find it appalling that those who are actually guilty of, of committing the crimes are viewed somehow by conspiracy theorists as too dumb to have done it. Right, mm. well, Gerald. In the yeah. past, you know, in the past, you have said understanding the person who pulled the trigger. Uh, is essential in these cases, in the case of Ray and Oswald, and certainly is the case here again as far as the many Islamic radicals and their history leading up to the events of 9/11. It's you know, and that's what and that's what your why your books I think are so good because you really delve into that. Um, you spend a lot of time trying to understand who are these triggermen. Who are these people behind these acts? And it all falls into place. It certainly makes a lot of logical sense. And, you know, you certainly support it with uh, 
uh, with a lot of uh, evidence and, uh, and, and facts of the, t- of the time. Well, you know, I think if you don't do that uh, as a journalist or a historian, uh, then you lose sight of the case. I mean, if you have a book that just talks about um, uh, ballistics and bullet angles um, on the Kennedy assassination, you don't talk about Oswald, uh, people can get distracted and think that's the entire case and forget about, you know, who was behind the trigger, as you said a second ago. And if you talk about the 9-11 case and talk about just explosives and the melting point for steel, uh, and that's the entire discussion, and you don't talk about uh, the 19 hijackers and what drove them, you can get lost in that minutia. Uh, and I think people do. They're, they are misled. They're taken off the main points of, of what what really took place, and that's a shame because um, it's too important for that to happen. And that's a good observation, lost in the minutiae. That is, I think, a fairly common attribute of pseudoscientists in general. They basically, it's almost like they, they get very myopic. They put blinders on, they can focus on the minutiae that can be distorted to, to meet their ends, and they lose sight deliberately you know, of the big picture. Right, right. And now, I must say that... Uh, one of the things that happened in Why America Slept, uh, in, in, in the final chapter, I disclosed the results of an interrogation with the leading al-Qaeda suspect who was captured by American forces in March of 2002. And it turns out that there are four deaths, what I call mysterious deaths, that mm-hmm. take place um, after this interrogation. And I don't know what to draw of those uh, deaths. Um, the Norton is American intelligence. Uh, they may be nothing. They might just be coincidental. But I did think that this was um, fate's way of uh, of evening out the, the score with me, since in the Kennedy assassination I had an entire appendix called the non-mystery mystery deaths, in which I sort of debunked the 103 so-called mystery deaths of the Kennedy assassination, where witnesses were supposed to have seen something mysterious and uh, then died of uh, of unnatural causes or car wrecks or heart attacks at, un- at, un- at young ages. And I sort of go through each of those deaths in short order and show you why there are no mystery deaths in the Kennedy assassination. And here I am in 9-11 talking about four mystery deaths, raising some questions for me. So it's my, my comeuppance after all this time that I should uh, have come back to talking about mystery deaths, the, uh, and only four of them. Right. But, <laughs> That's funny. And that sort of anticipates the, the, the last segment uh, here, which is to your, your most recent book, Secrets of the Kingdom, which it, it seems like it jumped off from the last chapter of Why America Slept to talk about the connection between the United States and, and, and Saudi Arabia. And there, there, you are making a case for somewhat of a conspiracy going on here, uh, although it's a different kind of conspiracy. This is a, a plausible, manageable conspiracy that could actually be enacted by a finite number of people, not the what we call grand conspiracies that people weave about 9-11 or, or JFK. But can you summarize that for me? Yeah, I don't even know if it's a conspiracy. And what I mean by that is um, uh, I point out, and this is one of the things I enjoy doing often, how the government has misled us, uh, whether intentionally or not, on, on different items regarding the flights of the Saudis um, after 9-11. I don't actually think there was a conspiracy here. I don't think there was anything untoward done. I don't think that any of the people who left America on those Saudi flights that Michael Moore talks about so much were involved in 9-11. My, my point is that we did what you might expect. There's a very good relationship between the Saudis and the American government. Uh, George Bush, then president, was uh, had been friends 
with Prince Bandar, then Saudi ambassador to the U.S. for some time. Um, Bandar and Bush met, and, and shortly after that, the first of the, uh, the flights left inside the United States to ferry some of the Saudis around. Um, I would not be surprised if the U.S. government did a favor for Bandar and the Saudis to say, let's get some leading prominent Saudis out of the U.S. so there's no backlash against them. And if the U.S. had said that in the immediate aftermath, um, there might have been some criticism of Bush, but it would have blown over. Instead, right. they wouldn't admit to that, and it led to the Michael Moore film. The same thing happened in a very different way when I did an article for the New Yorker years ago on the death of Princess Diana. I concluded, not surprisingly, that it was a car wreck, right. but that the French <laughs> authorities right, had hidden all types of material around the autopsy that were mistakes, the autopsy of Henri Paul, the driver, because they were embarrassed by them, giving fodder to the conspiracy theorists who thought there was something else here. So that even in Secrets of the Kingdom, there isn't so much a conspiracy that I make out as what I think happens often on these cases, which is government agencies make errors. They bungle certain things. And then later, instead of admitting it or releasing the documents around it because they are embarrassed, they will cover it up, hide it, not disclose it. And then eventually, when it does become public, it looks embarrassing. And it's taken by conspiracy theorists to be evidence of a cover-up of a crime, whereas I only interpret it often as further signs of government incompetence that I'm not surprised at any longer. How that lesson could not have been learned by 2006 is is almost you know beyond beyond belief. I agree with you. I keep thinking they will learn the lesson from the Kennedy assassination and others that disclosure is better early on rather than holding on, but it seems to be a knee-jerk response. I've seen it even on freedom of information requests. I will request a document that I've heard about from a government agency, and I assure you that there is some bureaucrat at that government agency who is not concerned at all about that document until I ask for it. And once I do, they then wonder what I want in that document, and and they refuse to release it. Uh, so it, it's just a remarkable process. In the in the Kennedy assassination, as you might well be aware, that in 1993, when the CIA declassified about 30,000 pages of material they had, included in those 30,000 pages, and I'm not kidding you, were newspaper articles that were classified secret. Now, tell me what type of dunce would take a public article that was available from a newspaper and classified as secret and put it in a CIA file? <laughs> Right. <laughs> Occam's razor definitely favors incompetence as the yes, I, explanation. Yes, I, I agree. Absolutely. Well, we're almost out of time, but just before you go, are you working on anything right now? I am, as a matter of fact, and I'm getting worried about meeting my deadline, which is six months away, but I go through this panic about this point on every book. Right. Um, this is on the business of the Vatican, and we'll uh, sort of look at the Vatican as a multinational corporation, uh, as if I was doing a book on Microsoft. So uh, it's, I don't mean to say that the Pope is like Bill Gates, but uh, the... Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it will be an interesting book, and it's, it'll go back a little ways in history, as I always do, and I uh, don't know my conclusions yet. Good. Even if you are pronounced a heretic, you are always invited back here. Gerald. Thank you very much. I may Absolutely. spend a lot of Thank you, after this book. I may spend a lot of time in purgatory. <laughs> you could join us in you. purgatory. Yeah. yeah, Gerald, it was wonderful having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. I hope uh, we can have you back soon. I look forward to it. Take care. Good Thank night. you. You too. Good night. Well, extremely interesting having Gerald Posner on the show. Uh, definitely have to get him back. He is the he is an yeah. excellent speaker. Oh, especially that, with that new book coming up. Of yeah, his. yeah, we'll get we'll get him after his new book. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're we're out of time. So we're just going to do a quick science or fiction, and we'll actually we need to give the uh, the answer to last week's puzzle as well. And I do have a new puzzle for for this week. So that we'll do that quickly. Um, so let's go on to science or fiction. <laughs> 
time for Science or Fiction. Every week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine, one is fictitious. And then I challenge my esteemed panel of skeptics to figure out which one is the fake. And of course, you at home can play along. There is a theme for this week. The theme is neurobiology. I happen to be an expert in neurobiology. You guys ready? Yes. Right. Number one. A new study shows that wearing a hat or helmet lined with aluminum foil reduces the frequency of seizures in certain epileptics. Item number two, a new study shows a link between gum disease and carotid atheromas, which are a significant risk for stroke. Item number three, a man has recently recovered from a 19-year coma, and evidence shows that his brain actually repaired and regrew over this time. So, does aluminum foil lining reduce the frequency of seizures and epilepsy? Does gum disease, gum disease give you strokes? Or did a man's brain repair itself after 19 years and allow him to wake up from a coma? Evan, why don't you start off? Number one is fiction. Okay. There you have it. Alrighty. Jay? Okay, well... The, the whole aluminum foil thing off the cuff sounds really, really, really fake. And it's one of those things where I have to question whether or not you would throw... You, you would sit there and make up something so unbelievably cheesy. It just kind of reminds me of like that guy that you see out that wears the triangle on his head. You ever see those people? Just last week I did. Oh, they're not ridiculous. It was funny. I, I see that guy at Costco all the time. Yeah, that's where I saw him, Jay. Is that a pyramid thing, though? Yes, yeah. yeah. Blocking your head from alien transmissions or whatever. But I'm going to go with number three because I distinctly remember you telling me at one point that brain tissue doesn't regrow. Like you can't damage it. It's not like other tissue in the body. It, once it's damaged, your brain will re remap things and use other parts of the brain to, to pick up slack. But regrowing brain tissue? No, I, I think that one's false. Perry. Um, yeah, the third one, you know, is believable. The second one seems, you know, reasonable. The The first one, you know, I, I've had a UFO protection foil hat for 30 years. It's worked so far, right? Yeah, but, 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 but now, you know, I didn't realize it had this, this other benefit. But I, I mean, I, you know, 30 years and uh, I find it, I find that not to be true. The first one's fake. Alrighty, Bob. Oh man, um, oh, number three, I believe that's correct. Um, you might be subtly changing this. Uh, I do believe that happened. Uh, the gum disease link, I've, uh, that just seems to, to coincide with uh, with other things that I that I've that I've learned about that. Uh, the helmet one is just so obviously, you know. <laughs> Baloney, and I think maybe that's what you're hoping we're going to think, or, or maybe you were hoping we were going to hope, and, and you know, because right. you know that you I know, know that, that you know. know. So uh, our overthinking this. I know. So I'm going to have to. I'll go with one. I'll just go with one because it's, <laughs> okay. it, it's ridiculous. I, I, I and I can't imagine how this tin foil is going to interact, except for a placebo effect. I don't know how that's going to react. 
interact with uh, you know anything about about brain activity outside your head? Go. You right. obviously haven't trained your brain waves. That's right. Well, let's start. Let's start with number three. And the answer Man is. Man recovers from 19-year coma with evidence of brain repair and regrowth. This one is science. This has been in the news. So I'm not surprised if you guys had heard about this. His uh, name's Terry, isn't it? Yeah, right. His name yeah. is Terry. Although it's, it's <laughs> a male Terry. Um, not to be confused with Terry Schiavo. No, the, no. The, there's a critical difference between this case and and the Terry Schiavo case and 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 other you know, uh, cases of people in a quote unquote coma. And coma isn't really a precise neurological term. Uh, and often I think that's where people get confused. This guy was in a minimally conscious state, so he was he was his brain was actually able to generate some level of consciousness, but not enough for him to like move Ooh, and talk. What a nightmare! So that he must was have locked been. in, Steve. Yeah. Gee, locked no, in. locked in is different. Locked in means no. you're yeah. fully awake, but you're just paralyzed from the eyes down. This guy oh. probably has that's no worse. He has no memories from this period of time. Right. And oh, that, that's good because that maybe like been. a it's again it's minimally conscious. But after 19 years, he made he crossed some threshold where he was right. able to speak and, and move. You know, he didn't. He's not you know fully neurologically functional, but he crossed this threshold. And this definitely has happened before. It's these kind of cases that sort of lead people to think that somebody can quote unquote come out of a coma. But these cases cannot be compared to cases, say, like with Terry Shiva, where she was in a persistent vegetative state. Totally that, different. Totally yeah. different. People yeah. do not come out of persistent vegetative states. That's why they're persistent. Well, Steve, Steve to, the, to the best of your knowledge and what you know about this case, what, I mean, when you say you cross a threshold, was even that, and, you know, they, and they, they put it very specifically from what I recall. But, I mean, are we talking about like at 5 p.m. Tuesday? He didn't have these abilities, and at 5 p.m. Wednesday, he did? Yeah, usually there's just, like, one day where they, they wake up, you know, from a sleep cycle, and they have a little bit more function than they did the day before. And it's That's some, amazing. It's some threshold where somebody notices he's different, you know. And then maybe over a couple of days, he, they, they start to talk more and starts to do more. Steve, this guy's brain tissue grew back, though. Yeah, so the, the different, the new bit here is that, you know, they in studying this guy's brain, they actually... You know, believe they've documented actual increase in neuronal tissue you know over this period of time so they they think that the brain was slowly repairing itself and Jay you know you 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 are somewhat correct in that the brain certainly uh, and especially as we get older has a very limited capacity to regrow new neurons although it, we used to think that it really right. after a certain point it couldn't and it's actually only been recently like in the last 10 years or so that we've accumulated evidence that n new neurons can in fact be made in the brain neurogenesis yeah so th this is like this is more evidence to support that that can actually take place but let's move on to let's work our way backwards let's go to number two now this was very quickly this was a, a dental study actually is looking at dental x-rays and comparing the amount of gum disease with the uh carotid, you know, hardening of the arteries, atheromas that you could see on those x-rays. This is purely a, a study associating the two, linking gum disease with atheromas. It says nothing about a causal relationship between the two. There are, you know, a, a number of theoretical connections that could be made. One, you know, could just be that, you know, people who take better care of themselves have both fewer cavities and less uh, arterial sclerosis. It could also be that you you know you get more bacteria in your blood if you have a lot of gum disease and 
and maybe that's playing a role in, in the acceleration of atheroma. So anyway, but that's this study didn't even explore that. This is just counting, you know, gum disease, you know, like how many cavities compared to how much uh, blockage, which means that number one, aluminum foil reducing the frequency of seizures in certain epileptics is fiction. Hey. Now, two in a row. Yeah, you, I mean, you guys are right. I mean, I the aluminum foil hat thing is kind of a classic, you know, <laughs> uh, silly thing. Uh, and, yeah, I thought I'd change things up a little bit and th- make the fiction one sound, sound really ridiculous to not be but too predictable. But we knew that you knew. Yeah. That we knew. <laughs> I wanted to see if I could lure any almost. of you. Almost. You almost got, got Jay. I got Jay. But, yeah, I know I, you guys almost overthought it. I wanted to see if I could lure anyone into actually thinking that aluminum foil helmet stopped seizures. Uh, I believe I gave the answer in about a, one second. Yeah, you I told did. You exactly what it You're was. You're so smart, Evan. <laughs> Well done. True. Well done. It's true. All right. It's true. Now, last week, last week when you guys were, were, what were you doing last week? You were not around. You were skipping the show. Yeah, skipping. I was on a ghost podcast. You skipped us. I gave out the following puzzle. <laughs> I did. I was out of town. I gave out the following puzzle. And this is an old one. I did not make this up. This is a classic example of how bad people are inherently at statistics and mathematics. Uh, so this is uh, the puzzle of, of, the, of the game show Let's Make a Deal. Basically, uh, you have a contestant who is presented with three doors. Behind one of the doors is a fabulous prize. Uh, they, they are asked to pick one with the door they think has the prize behind it. They pick one door. The host on the show Let's Make a Deal it was Monty Hall. Then there are, so there are two doors that the person did not pick. He opens one of those two doors showing that the prize is not there. And then we'll ask the contestant, do you want to stick with your original choice or do you want to change your choice to the second door? The question is, what should the contestant do? Should they stick with their original choice? Should they change to the other door? Or does it not make any difference? Meaning it's 50-50 either way. Very interesting. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting problem. And a lot of people, just their, their first instinct is wrong. Uh, right. Often people, their initial instinct is, well, it's, there's two doors, so it's 50-50, so it doesn't matter. Uh, but actually, the contestant should change their pick to the other door. If they stick with their original pick, even though one of the two doors has been revealed, it's still only a one-third chance that their original pick is correct. If they change to the other door, their chances go up to two out of three. They double their odds. They double their odds. And there's a lot of different ways that you could think about this to try to understand why that is true. I think the simple way, for me, the simple way is to say is that no matter what door they pick, there'll be two doors left, and at least one of those doors will not have the prize behind it. So no matter what door the contestant picks, Monty Hall can still open a door uh, in, in that does not have a prize under it. So that's, that's actually does not change the odds in any way. It's, it's so, a little bit of misdirection. It kind of, you know... Yeah. So it's still, though, you see, the, those, the probability that the original pick was correct is still one-third, the probability that the prize is behind one of those two doors is still two-thirds. And in a way, you could think that Monty Hall just collapses the, that two-third probability into one door. So that door right. has a two-third probability of having the prize. I remember us having a hard time convincing an auditorium full of, yes. full of teachers. I was having that. a hard time doing that. It was, it's not intuitive. Here, <laughs> it's here's counterintuitive. The problem with it is, is your brain just says there's two doors left. It's 50-50. Right. Right. Because you're course. discounting the first door. Yeah. 
It just shows our brains are really not hardwired to really be good at statistics and math in this way. Yeah, That's, Steve, you said a long time ago in a lecture, people's brains are very good at pattern recognition, but they absolutely suck at probability. Right. right. And that stuck with me. But here's another way to look at that. Uh, this is this is a decent way to do it. Essentially, what Monty Hall is doing here is giving you this option. Would you rather pick door one or doors two and three? Right. Well, what would you rather do? Now, obviously... Anyone would say, well, I'll take two and three. And that's essentially, that's essentially what he's doing for you right there. Let's uh, quickly I'll, I'll give the puzzle for next week, and then we'll give you the answer on, uh, on next week's show. This is a, um, a, another historical question. Name the medical pseudoscience that, although now is thoroughly disproved and rejected by mainstream science, at its inception was on the correct side of a major scientific debate of its time. Now, I have a very specific answer in mind. If any of you, you think you know, you, you know the answer to this, send it in. You could email me with, with the answer. Uh, I'd be interested in knowing if I get any responses that are true that meet all the criteria that I laid out, but that's different than the answer that I have in mind. So it's possible there's more than one correct answer to this, but I have a very specific answer in mind. Again, a medical pseudoscience that is total, total bunk, but at, at the time was on the correct side of a major scientific debate. Steve, I have an, a couple of announcements real quick. On the uh, bulletin board, if you go into the general discussion area, we have a link on there, which is very close to the top or second from the top now, called Skeptic's Guide Contest, where we're asking our listeners to give us ideas for um, things that we can use our marketing material, like T-shirts, hats, mugs. And, they, and we, we're basically looking for witty, skeptical sayings or anything that you've heard or something you've come up with that you think is funny or witty. Yeah, what would you like to have on a cap, a mug, or a T-shirt? Let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. Well, that is all the time that we have. Uh, guys, thanks for joining me. Great episode. Thanks, Steve. Steve. Thank you. Yeah. Very good. It's Very always good. a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Had a good time. And back to guide you through the universe next yep. week. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society. For information on this and other podcasts, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problems, proofs, endless delays.